0: Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful week so far. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. A lot of stuff that I want to get into on the podcast today. I'm going to be getting into some news in regards to the Marvels, to the future of the Fast and Furious franchise, the first trailer for the new Bradley Cooper film, which he will star and direct in, just dropped, which will be coming out from Netflix. And also, I want to celebrate a 15-year anniversary for a film that came out around this time period back in 2008, and so much more. But the first thing that I do want to talk about on the podcast today as we dive right in is what I usually like to do on the beginning of the week whenever I can, on Mondays or Tuesdays, and that, of course, is recapping this past weekend's box office. And looking at this weekend's box office, it's kind of the same old, same old over the last couple weeks if you really kind of look at it, and we're going to get into it going from 1 to 10. so for the fourth straight weekend in a row, the reigning champion is of course Barbie written co-written and directed by Greta Gerwig starring of course Margot Robbie Ryan Gosling an incredible A-list cast scored an additional 33 million dollars this weekend it has so far grossed 526 million dollars domestically 660 million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of 1.1 billion dollars at the worldwide box office, yes, it's not at an M anymore with million. It's at a B, a billion plus for Barbie. The story, the film that has taken the summer season by storm, the box office by storm, everyone going, dressing up in pink, going to see this film. It is truly the phenomenon of summer 2023. Everyone, including myself, was looking to see what would be kind of the Top Gun Maverick of this summer. Clearly, Barbie has taken that mantle and run with it in an extraordinary story. Story kind of of an underdog story in getting this movie made from Margot Robbie, Greta Gerwig, and to doing what it's been able to do at the box office is extraordinary. It is the first film in 2023 or to spend four frames at number one since the Super Mario Bros. movie did it back in April. It is the number ninth film overall in terms of its standings, in terms of the way that it opened at $33 million for its fourth weekend. And when you look at the domestic rankings in terms of it climbing up, up the charts is continuing to do that both domestically and worldwide so here in the states it is the number 18th highest grossing movie of all time sitting right in between 2016's rogue one a star wars story which made 533 and a half million dollars in its overall domestic total and then stuck between another star wars film in star wars the rise of skywalker which came out in 2019 which grows 515.2 million dollars in its domestic run so this film is going to be eclipsing the charts and eclipsing films that did this at pretty significant feats and continuing to climb up the charts. It's going to be interesting to see if it can hit the 15th spot, maybe even hit the top 10 mark when all is said and done. We're looking at the worldwide total for this film at $1.18 billion. It is right now ranked as the 25th highest grossing film of all time, sandwiched in between an MCU film and an Illumination film. It's right now between Iron Man 3, which made $1.2 billion, and then he eclipsed over Minions, the spin off Minions film from 2015, which made $1.15 billion at the box office. So. Again, in terms of its worldwide total, just continuing to climb up the rankings. And an even more of an impressive feat is looking at the studio behind this film, which is Warner Brothers. And if you know the history of WB, which is right now in its 100th year overall since its inception years and years ago, and the history that lays upon that studio... It is right now currently the second highest grossing film in Warner Brothers history in terms of worldwide box office grosses. The only film that sits in front of it right now is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which hit back in 2011, was the event of the summer season when it hit back in that time period. And so for Barbie to eclipse films like Aquaman and Batman and the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, some of these illustrious big blockbusters that came out during the summer season in years past to be only behind Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two is quite extraordinary because Again, back in 2011, in terms of kind of these big conclusion event films like we've seen in recent years, like Avengers Endgame, Harry Potter was that kind of big film in 2011. So that Barbie is sitting there, and this is a film that, again, even though it's based off of a doll, and the doll itself of Barbie and Ken and the world of Barbie Land is huge within the kind of toy-making world, this isn't a franchise. This isn't a film that is based off of existing films beforehand. And this is a film that really had a subversive, extraordinary, original idea from original creatives and utilized that in the world of Barbie. And when you look at the films that Barbie is passing, passing, it's based off of existing books or existing comic book characters. And it's doing this kind of business is, again, really, really extraordinary. And again, like I said at the top, it goes to the people that were really at the forefront of creating this. And I talk about Greta Gerwig, who co-wrote this directed it and what she's been able to do now the highest grossing female director of all time stop period nothing ahead of that because it's including both worldwide and domestic so really she can do whatever the hell she wants next i know she's doing a narnia film after both the writer's strike and the sack strike are over with so we'll see if that is actually still something that happens i don't know how far along they are in that process because i'm sure her ages are going to want to get her something a little bit better to do within the theatrical landscape all due to Netflix so that's one piece of the puzzle but the other piece and the one that really drove this film from beginning to end once it entered the space of kind of up for grabs after being at a a couple studios in production hell for so long is the star of the film who is the producer and the main creative driving engine I think for this film overall from its original inception is Margot Robbie and because of the success of this film, even though we know Margot Robbie, she's a big name. I think she is truly a star, and I think she's somebody that people will go see in theaters to go see her films and her acting, because she's an extraordinary actress. I know she, she's beautiful, and she she's a beautiful woman, but she really is somebody who just is able to captivate you on the screen with what she's able to do with her acting abilities. And she is going to be making... million in salary and box office bonuses for this film. I think that includes what she'll probably make in an actor's salary, whatever she's going to make in terms of being a producer on this movie, and I think this is a big story for her, both as an actress but also showcases her as a great producer as well and if you know her production company Lucky Chap, she's done films in the past, like Pretty, uh, Pretty Young Woman which was an incredible indie Oscar monster of a film that came out during the pandemic that if you haven't checked out, I highly recommend you do. It's on digital right now. It's starring Carrie Mulligan in an Oscar-nominated performance from her. And so she's somebody who really, I think, has a has an eye not just for projects but also for eyeing directors and and creating films and getting them off the ground and pitching them great for studios because she's been saying in press interviews before the strike that she pitched this movie to Warner Brothers as a billion dollar pitch and she jokes saying I was over exaggerating who knows if this thing will make a billion well Margot it's made a billion dollars and you made a very significant turnout for this film the only other female actress to kind of make that kind of turnaround was Sandra Bullock with Gravity back in 2013, where in terms of salary and bonuses from the box office, she made $70 million from that film. So again, this is an extraordinary feat that Barbie has been able to pull off. And I think it's just going to continue moving forward in these next couple of weeks, even though we have films like Blue Beetle coming out this this upcoming week. Next week, it's going to be the wide release of Gran Turismo. And then the week after for Labor Day weekend is the Equalizer three. I truly don't know if those films or anything else coming out in those next three weekends are going to be able to push Barbie out of the top 10. Maybe Blue Beetle might be able to do it since it's kind of from D.C., but it's not a big... Kind of comic book character like even a flash or wonder woman or superman batman but maybe who knows maybe that film could actually turn out to do better than expected but i just see bobby excuse me barbie dominating the box office in the next couple weekends and i could see continuing to ratchet up those charts i could think it could potentially eclipse deathly howls part two for warner brothers and being the highest grossing film in the history of that studio And remember that is a long long history that is over at warner brothers in their filmography so that's an incredible feat to do on its own, but also the fact that it's going to continue to climb up worldwide charts, domestic all-time charts. It's just absolutely amazing to see what this film has been able to do and kind of the Barbenheimer effect of all of it. And speaking of Barbenheimer, the second half of that word came in at number two at the box office this past weekend, moving back up the charts from where it was last weekend at number three, moving back up to the number two spot, grossing an additional $18.8 million at the box office. It now has $264 million domestically, $383 million internationally for a worldwide total of $648 million at the box office. And while it's not making the billions that Barbie is making, what Oppenheimer's doing is also very, very, very significant, given the fact that it is a three-hour biopic that has any action, hardly any action in it whatsoever, minus the big Trinity test explosion, kind of towards towards the end of the second act into the third act of the film, everything else is very much dialogue heavy, it's a mixture of color and black and white images and it's not really the kind of flashy Christopher Nolan film that we've come to know and see, like an Inception, Interstellar, Dark Knight even something like a Dunkirk or Tenet, it's not really within that realm of what Nolan has been able to has done in the past. It's very much something completely different, and the film is making well over six hundred million dollars at the worldwide box office. So it's just an incredible feat that that film has also been able to pull off. And in terms of the records that it's keeping right now, in terms of its R-rated status, which that's also going to fact that it's making six hundred million plus and it's R-rated, it is the number nine biggest R-rated movie of all time on the domestic front right in between both hangover films coming in above the hangover part two which came out in 2011 and gross overall in the states 254.4 million dollars and behind the first hangover film which again back in 2009 was a huge breakout film really i think launched in the careers of the trio of the wolf pack with zach Efron, ed helms bradley cooper who we'll talk about later in the podcast and was a really a truly a huge surprise hit when it came out in 2009 Nine during the summer movie season, it is a, it is behind that at $277.3 million domestically. So again, what Oppenheimer's is achieving right now. It's truly amazing, given the fact that when you look at Nolan's filmography, even taking out the, the Dark Knight trilogy altogether, looking at Inception, Interstellar, Oppenheimer is looking to really pass those films and become the highest grossing Christopher Nolan film that is not any of the Batman films in his filmography, which is an incredible achievement, and I think it really speaks to a again the whole brobenheimer phenomenon and effect that it has had on the summer season so far and also i think it speaks to the name that christopher nolan brings and i and i've said he is the most bankable director in Hollywood right now where you can literally, you don't even have to to put stars in the poster. You just have to say a film by Christopher Nolan, which all the the promotions for his films do, and that will get people to see his films in the theater no matter what. It could turn out to be the crappiest movie in the world, but you know that that's not going to really happen with a Christopher Nolan film because he takes his time in creating true theatrical experiences at the box office. And even something like Oppenheimer, which again is a biopic at its heart, feels like so much more than that. It feels like an experience you can only truly have in theater. So it's just absolutely amazing what both Barbie and Oppenheimer Oppenheimer, excuse me have been able to do. And it's gonna be very interesting to see again what they do for the rest of the summer movie season in these next couple of weeks. And even moving forward, how this is gonna look when it goes into September and October and beyond that. So I think the last verification for this are very in a positive way, and it's gonna be exciting to see where these continue to go. In the next couple of weeks then moving on to the number three film of this past weekend which was the early august release of teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem which grossed an additional 15.2 million dollars at the box office it's now made 72.3 million dollars domestically 21 million dollars internationally for a 94 million dollar worldwide tally and I was kind of saying in the summer movie season kind of previews that I did earlier this year that August is very much going to be finding what the diamonds in the rough are. And I think when you looked at the slate of summer films that were coming out this year, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was definitely one of those films that could do that. I think it has the name recognition, the IP. It's very popular with a lot of young kids, especially within the male demographic. And I think that in terms of animation, I think the fact that when you look at something like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is kind of pushing the limit and opening up the minds of what you can do with the animation format, it seemed like Mutant Mayhem was doing the exact same thing of really kind of... Changing up the format of what we do with Ninja Turtles, but also creating interesting new areas of what you can do within the animation realm. So I think it's more than just what we see with Pixar. In Disney Animation Studio, even what Illumination does nowadays. I think it's about doing things outside of the norm and outside of the box, and clearly, when you look at animation just this summer alone, what into the, Across the Spider-Verse has been able to do, and what Mutant Mayhem have been able to do, and the responses that both of those films are getting at the box office signals that audiences love these IPs, but they love that the creative direction that these IPs went in, whether it's because of story, characters, the animation itself, or a combination of all those elements. I think it showcases that audiences are responding to that and it's clearly given the success of these films so far and mutant mayhem is just adding to that level right now so i think this is a really good reintroduction and kickstart for teenage mutant ninja turtles on the big screen and i wouldn't be shocked as it's been reported that they're already getting a sequel and spin-off stuff within the world of paramount plus and in theaters that this is just the start of of a brand new journey for the Mutant Turtles in this iteration, both on the small screen and, of course, the big screen as well. Then moving on to number four comes Meg 2 The Trench, which grossed an additional $12.8 million in the box office. It's now made $54.2 million domestically, $204 million internationally for a worldwide total of $258 million at the box office. And to me, when you kind of break down those numbers for Meg 2, it's absolutely no surprise that the international numbers are way overproducing, more so than the domestic ones. This was always, I think, more of an international play, specifically within the China market than any other place even around the world. So I think that's where it's going to be able to find its profit. It seems like it's going to be able to kind of skate by and turn in a good performance, kind of staying out of the red and going into the black and perform really, really well. Now, whether that means... It's going to require a sequel or not. I don't know. But I think that what Warner Brothers and the producing partners for this film are hoping for is playing out that internationally, this is much more of a steady hit than it is here. Domestically, We're just kind of the icing on the cake, if any, for this film, if it was ever going to kind of make any kind of turnaround in the U.S. box office like the last film did in 2018. Then moving on to number five, which was for the film that was kind of the only big release film of this past weekend, which was The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which grossed $6.5 million at the box office. It's the same amount that it's made domestically. hasn't come out in any international markets yet, so its worldwide total is the same as its domestic tally, which is the same as its opening weekend numbers. So, That is not a very good number for The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which I believe is a $100 million plus budget for this film. Plus, when you talk about the marketing and advertising that the film had, I never really saw a whole lot of promo for this film. And I think the Dracula angle that this film had wasn't really kind of produced in the marketing campaign. And I think they were showcasing the monster, but I don't think a lot of people know that to be a version of Dracula. So I think this one had a little bit of confusion. And even though marketing is kind of one of those foolproof genres that you can kind of go into and no matter the critical reception the, the marketing kind of has to be big for I think a, a horror film but all those things together usually can spell success for a film but sometimes for something like this it just didn't have the same kind of pop I think there's other horror films that are out here right now that are doing better and I think attracting that audience brand to go and see it more so with this one and I just think that maybe Dracula is doing it right now and between Renfield and this one, it gives me a little concern for what Robert Eggers is doing with Nosferatu, but I have a little bit more hope for that one because it is coming from someone like Robert Engel, a Robert Eggers, so maybe it has a different kind of twist and angle to it that'll attract people to go see it in theaters, but to me, this is no surprise when I saw these numbers that it just wasn't getting the kind of traction that you would want for this film. The buzz for it wasn't there, so no surprise that this film is very much underperforming at the box office right now as it comes in at number five this weekend then to go to the rest of the top 10 coming in at number six is the disney film haunted mansion was grossed an additional 5.7 million dollars at the box office and now has grossed 53 million dollars at the box office Looking at the rest of the totals domestically, it's made $53 million internationally, $22.9 million for a worldwide total of 70, $76 million worldwide at the box office. Then coming in at number seven is the A24 flick, Talk To Me, which grows an additional $5.1 million at the box office. and now has made $31.3 million domestically, $5.2 million internationally for a worldwide total of $36 million at the box office. And speaking of films that, again, were very attractive for horror fans, this is definitely one that appeased the people. And this is the lowest dip for a film this weekend. We talk about percentages from last weekend to this past weekend. This one only had a percentage drop of 19% percent. And this is its third weekend that it's been out in theaters. So for a film that only had a production budget of four and a half million dollars, and even just here domestically, it's made $31 million, let alone worldwide $36 million. That is a very good sign for this for this film. And it makes sense that A24 decided to greenlight another film to kind of make this a franchise. And when you look at A24 and their horror films, they're very good at, at doing these kind of low budget franchise films in a way. They're doing It with Ty West, with this kind of X trilogy between X. You also had the the, the film Pearl last year with Mia Goff, and then you have the the trilogy Capper that's coming out soon in Maxine. And now it seems like A24 is doing that same thing with the Talk To Me universe that was established in that first film. So I really like the success and seeing indie films like this kind of go a long way and have creators that are invested in continuing to tell these stories and have ideas in telling these stories. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this film continues to do. And what it means moving forward with these sequels as well then to go into the final three in the top 10 at number eight was sound of freedom which grows an additional 4.8 million dollars at the box office and now has made 172 million dollars domestically has not come out of in international markets, so its worldwide total is the same as its domestic total coming in at number nine is mission impossible dead reckoning part one which grows an additional 4.6 million dollars at the box office and now has made 159.4 4 million dollars domestically, 362 million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of 522 million dollars worldwide at the box office. And then coming in and rounding out the top 10, at the 10th spot is the final film in the Indiana Jones franchise, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which made $921,000 this weekend. It now has made $172 million domestically, internationally $202 million, and then in worldwide total it has made three. 375 million dollars at the box office so to round out the top 10 once again going from 10 to 1 at number 10 was indiana jones in the dial of destiny number 9 was mission impossible dead reckoning part 1 number 8 was sound of freedom number 7 was talk to me number 6 was haunted mansion number 5 was the last voyage of the demeter number 4 was Meg to the trench number 3 teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem number 2 oppenheimer and then coming in once again the reigning box office champion for the fourth straight weekend barbie so what did you guys think about the top 10 at the box office this weekend let me know what you thought down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts now to move on from the box office and talk about some movie news that came out over the last couple of days that I want to get into the next couple of stories actually come from the same source which is from Total Film it comes from a brand new magazine that has all these new tidbits on some of the big fall films coming out in the next couple of months but the one that is kind of on the cover that I want to talk about first is coming of course from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and while we do have the second season of Loki coming on Disney Plus first in October the next film to follow in the mcu coming off the success of guardians of the galaxy Vol- volume 3 in may is of course the marvels which is a sequel to the 2019 billion dollar hit in captain marvel and this time she brings with her some brand new camaraderies in tiana parish's new character photon F- i believe the, new- the name is and of course Amon valani playing miss marvel once again from her disney plus show with miss marvel so so, it's kind of a trio that is leading this film this time around. Samuel Jackson is a part of the crew once again as Nick Fury coming off of his show, Secret Invasion, that was airing this summer, and so... This is a film that I think really does have a lot on the line riding on it, especially coming off of Guardians of the Galaxy. And I've been saying for the longest time, the biggest test for Marvel after Quantumania wasn't going to be Guardians of the Galaxy, just because I think Guardians already had its set fan base. They had fans that were excited about how this trio was going to end their journey. They had confidence in James Gunn coming back to write and direct that how he would lead these characters. So that was kind of, I always thought, a cushion, a little bit of a stopgap. That it would stop the bleeding in terms of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on a movie scale in terms of the quality of these films. The big test is going to be what would they do with the Marvels and how would somebody who is, I think, a really great director in Nia Dacosta take this film? and go to the next level with it and i think do a better job than even the first captain marvel did because even though captain marvel made over a billion dollars at the box office i think in the end when you look at that film it's an okay film when you're kind of doing your rankings in the MCU, i think it's probably right in the middle of kind of that that like 15 to 20 range of marvel films you can kind of put it there that's what i would put it in my rankings but it still made over a billion dollars. And I think a big part of that was because it was literally coming out a month, a month and a half from arguably the most anticipated film of all time in Avengers Endgame. And so that was kind of the next, the last piece of the puzzle before that film came out. So people really wanted to see, I think, what, what that film was going to include that it was going to be a part of the journey of that movie coming from Infinity War to Endgame. But also I do believe that there were people that wanted to support the film. It was the first female, major female, led superhero film within the marvel cinematic universe wonder woman beat it in terms of being the first live action true live action comic book debut of a leading lady in a comic book movie in wonder woman but captain marvel played by brie larson was the first one to do it in the mcu overall even before black widow did it she was just kind of a a supporting character in a lot of the avengers films captain america films so Captain Marvel was the first one where at the forefront it's a leading lady. But overall, I think the quality of that film is okay at best. So I think when you heard that Nia DaCosta was coming in, you were hoping that she could elevate this film to new heights. But I think since her hiring and since this film was shot and and, and put in the can, a lot of things have changed within Marvel. And I think a big part of it is the quality of those movies. Overall, And going into into what she said in Total Film, I think it's very interesting, some of the comments that she made. And one of the big things that's been kind of talked about a lot over the years, and this is even predating the struggles that comic book movies are having right now, especially within the MCU. This is always something that was talked about, where it would be about comic book fatigue, where even in the mid-2010s, you would have multiple... MCU films DC films X-Men films before Disney and 20th Century Fox merged together they would have those films Fantastic Four you had all these different films kind of coming together and you were wondering well is this overloading the market and even though some films didn't do as well as others it was more about the quality of the films than the quantity of them and I think you saw that reaping the benefits throughout the box office when the MCU was just every single film for the most part was a hit from whether it made a billion dollars Or not, when you include the budget and what the film was being made for, they were hits through and through. And so now people are wondering is it really comic book fatigue or is it more of the same thing? And I think it was very interesting to hear what Nia Takasa had to say about. Her mentality on it and her mentality because of that her mentality of what she thinks the marvels will do will do differently that could change that and so this is what she had to say to total film and the first thing she responded to was is super fi- superhero fatigue a thing, does it exist? And this is what she had to say. I think superhero fatigue absolutely exists. The biggest difference from the other MCU movies to date is that it's really wacky and silly. The worlds we go to in this movie are worlds unlike others you've seen in the MCU, bright worlds that you haven't seen before. So to me, Her comments are very, very interesting. First off, when she talks about superhero fatigue, does it exist? I think there's more of an argument this time around than in previous years. of Our audience is tired of comic book movies. I don't necessarily agree with saying that it exists. I do believe that there is fatigue in the quality of these films, not so much the, the drive in these films being put out. I do think that it is more the fact that some of these films are just stale, and they're just repeating the same things over and over and over again again and when Nia talks about what what the biggest difference between other MCU films and this is that this one for the Marvels is wacky and silly and crazy and to me when I hear that I All due respect, I cringe a little bit because to me, that is a big reason for why some of these MCU films are not doing as well. And I think for as many people love what James Gunn does in his films or even what Taika did with Thor Ragnarok or even some of the previous Ant-Man films, sure, they were wacky and silly, but they were able to toe a line with the films themselves of being wacky but also being emotional and, and servicing an emotional drive That service the characters and also allowed the audience to kind of cheer on these characters and be invested. In their story overall, whether it's someone like Peter Quill, who is kind of an outsider and lost his mother, but is trying to find a family, or clearly what we saw with Rocket Raccoon's backstory, or someone in the vein of Scott Lane, played by Paul Rudd, who, in the especially the first Ant-Man film, was trying to create a relationship coming out of prison with his young daughter. And then you have a, a film like Thor Ragnarok, where even though that's kind of wacky and out there, it very much had a, a, a thorough line for Thor and who do you want to be? Do you want to be a ruler, a king, a warrior? What are you? And what is Asgard and the relationship between him and Loki and then Valkyrie and kind of the PTSD she has within the world of Asgard as well and her tra- her traumatic background in a way. All that was kind of a, of a service to the story and the blend of it. And so when Anita Costa says, well, this one is going to be different from the other MCU films, that it's wacky and silly. You're kind of going into the vein of things that are just accustomed to the MCU right now. The things that are the outliers are things kind of like Black Panther Wakanda Forever or the Captain America films or a Deadpool film. The things that are more grounded in reality, I think is what people are looking for right now. And I think the great thing about the Infinity Saga of the MCU was the way in that they were able to balance all these different genres within the comic book landscape and put them within these individual movies and I just don't think you're seeing that right now and to me that worries me with this film now I'm hoping that Nia DaCosta and the writers on this film are able to balance this film a lot better and it's going to be able to go back to having some fun and being wacky and goofy and these characters definitely are that and they bring that levity to the film and their characters but also having that emotional balance and I think there's a Lot of things that could work in the favor of a film like this seeing what carol danvers and what Tiana Parrish's character can do moving within their relationship or seeing how Amon Valani acts alongside Brie Larson and Tiana Parrish all together. I think it could be very interesting as a whole. And and Miss Marvel seeing her hero in Captain Marvel. Maybe that character, that icon isn't what she thought she was. Seeing that relationship could be very interesting. So there are things in the elements that I think could work, but if it's also gonna be goofy and silly and it's just gonna be that, I don't think that's going to work for these movies, because you look at Thor Love and Thunder, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, it just never worked for those movies, and, and I think people are now growing tired of that, so I think if you're able to bring something new and fresh and different, that's great. But you have to also make sure that you retain it a little bit and make sure you deliver on the emotion and the characters and deliver, I think, a satisfying story while also, of course, doing the great things that we love in the MCU and connecting everything together as well. So... Again, I, I think it, it worries me a little bit when she has these things to say about what the film and the tone is going to be because we've seen that already happen. I, th- I don't think fans want to see that right now at the moment and anymore. I think they want to see something a little bit more grounded and retained and we'll see how this film is able to do that. Maybe she does have a great balance with it along with it being wacky and silly and fun at the same exact time. So we'll see what happens, but... It's going to be a long road, and it's going to be very interesting to me to see how this film does critically and also at the box office, because the box office wise these the, what it it wasn't a big thing last year but this year it got a little bit it, it was a little bit rocky especially in the beginning of the year with Man of the Was Quantumania, Mania where that only made around 500 million dollars and the problem for that is because the film was already made at a budget of 200 million dollars before marketing is even included into the addition of that budget so for a film like this, I don't know the exact numbers for what the budget is, but I'm probably thinking it's north of 150 probably, given that this is taking place in space and all these different worlds, probably a lot of CGI-heavy effects. It's going to be very interesting to to see where it goes from here and if it can make... 600 700 billion dollars. I think that's where we have to set the mark for this film. Can it make a billion? I don't I don't know. And and, and for one of the very first times ever, I'm very skeptical if Marvel can make a billion dollars or make 800 900 million. It it's, it's feels in it feels like a very hard task for this film to do that with and especially depending on what happens with the strike and and I know especially the sack strike. I know that Marvel can market itself but I think it would help having these three ladies go out there and promote the film. I think that would be really, really key in getting people to see this film that maybe are a little on edge. Maybe seeing these three in an interview on the press tour could get people into the theaters as well. So we'll see where it goes. I, I, I understand where the director is coming from, where Nia DaCosta is coming from. I really did enjoy some, a little bit her her Candyman film. I think she is a really good director, and so I'm hoping she's able to deliver with the Marvels, which releases this year on November 10th. And then the other article that I found in Total Film that interested me is going away from the MCU and going to the Fast and Furious franchise. Fast X came out earlier this year was one of the bigger films to come out and have, I think, a really good worldwide total over $700 million at the box office and was kind of the beginning, quote unquote, the beginning of the end for the main time period in the Fast and Furious franchise with Dom Toretto and his family and crew at his side. And one of the big things that was kind of announced was along with this kind of being a potential two-parter where Fast 10 or Fast X was part one. There was going to be an additional part two that was set to come out in about two years from now, specifically 2025. But then Vin Diesel on the world premiere red carpet for the film in Rome came out and dropped a huge bomb where basically he said actually it might not be two films it might be an actual trilogy within this storyline that we're telling right now and ever since then it's been very ambiguous of what did he mean by that is there already a film that's kind of secretly greenlit that hasn't been really announced yet and Vin was kind of doing that unofficially officially what was all of that about and so in total film kind of in time for the home video release of Fast 10 the director of the film who came at the last minute after Justin Lin decided to exit about a week into filming the movie last year Louis Leterrier came in and kind of brought the rest of the film home, and with that, he was awarded with directing the second part to kind of keep that consistency going in these films, since this is really kind of telling one big story, and talking about the film and the home video release, he also talked about the notions of doing a third film within this storyline that is taking place with Jason Momoa's character, and this is what he had to say on the fact. The one thing about Vin is, like when he's on a press line, he will say anything to get out of that press line and I'm kind of like him and go yeah sure we will go to the moon in the next one bye and then you never forget so it sounds like Louis Leterrier is kind of playing it down a little bit. Like, oh, he just said something just to get out of the press interview. But when I go back and watch that press interview, it wasn't like Vin Diesel was was looking to get out of there. I mean, Michelle Rodriguez was, was with him. He, she was the one that had to pull him out of the press line to get him out of there with the interview. Who It was a great drop for Fandango and nas Perez, who was the host of that red carpet. She got the, the, the answer out of him, and she was ready to keep asking him questions about it, which I can't blame her for. And it seemed like he would have kept talking about it. And Michelle Rodriguez pulled him away. And that was the end of it. So is there another one? Is there not? I, I really don't know. And Vin Diesel, it could go one way or the other. It could be something that he's hoping could happen. And he kind of put it out there to maybe put pressure on Universal to do it. But to me it comes down to a question of not, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? The question is, is it a smart idea for it to actually happen? Because to me, I'm somebody who really loves the Fast and Furious franchise. And it truly has become a a huge franchise. It's something that I feel like you could write a book about of a franchise that went an unprecedented route, was Uh, not even a decent film franchise. It was kind of like a B-level group of films that almost went direct to DVD. And then, ever since Fast 4, Fast 5, became this huge juggernaut at the box office and really peaked with both the 7th and 8th installments of those franchises. And since then, it's kind of taken a little bit of a dip. I think it's still a bigger hit worldwide in the international markets than it is here, and it's kind of been that way for a bit. But... Even with Fast 10, that saw 700 million plus, which for any other film is good. But for Fast 10, that was with a $300 million budget. Plus, without marketing, it's one of the most expensive, not the most expensive film of all time being made in terms of production. And so for me, it's it's a notion of is this a smart idea or isn't it? Because are there diminished returns with this franchise right now? Is there a, a layoff with this with these movies that if you keep doing them, you're gonna lose interest and interest and interest? And what turned into a more lucrative franchise becomes something of low hanging fruit and something that Universal is locked into when it's not making them the money that it used to do because I think you already have audiences invested and fans invested that this is already a two-parter. It's going to conclude the story. But if you keep making more and more movies that are just kind of off the hip, I don't know if that's really going to work. And sure, you can keep running the franchise back and people will come back for more and more. But you might get the fans, but the general audience might just be sick of these movies because you already have a part two coming out. And you already have a spin-off film with Dwayne Johnson coming back in Hobbs. And is that the third film in this trilogy? Is it just a two-parter within the Fast and Furious canon and the third film is the spin-off movie or is it that we're getting a second part a potential third part and this hobbs movie because if that's the case that's three additional movies that are coming out in the next couple of years and and again while we have all these other franchises that are coming out i don't know if people will continue to come out for fast and furious in the way that they did beforehand but, you know, who knows? We, we You never know. I think people could still come out for them, but it's going to be very interesting to see. And, and I don't know if it's a smart idea to just keep coming off the hip and saying, oh, no, 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 we're going to do more and more and more and more. And more. And if you keep doing that, I think the true diminished returns will be seen with these films, and it won't be able to do as well as it used to. So we'll see what happens. I, I'm not 100% sold that there isn't a third film in the works, but even if there is or isn't, my question, my bigger question is Is it a smart idea for them to do a third film within this trilogy of this kind of quote unquote fast 10? trilogy or Fast X trilogy, however you want to call it. So we'll see, but I'm interested to in see what you guys think, both in the case of the Marvels and what Niazakasa had to say about the film and also about the Fast 10 third film potentially. Is there going to be a third film? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And the next story that I want to talk about on the podcast is to keep within the comic book world and go into the world of kind of Sony Marvel and specifically a film that was supposed to come out October 6th of this year, but because of the SAG-AFTRA strike and they wanted to have a full press tour of the film, decided to kick a film that was supposed to come out in the fall and pretty much punt it basically a little over a year from now, coming out on August 30th, 2024, and that is Craven the Hunter, which is directed by Jay-Z Kander, starring Aaron Taylor-Johnson in the title role. And what's kind of awkward is earlier this week, or rather yesterday on Monday... Esquire came out with a full spread profile on Aaron Taylor Johnson, which makes sense because this was a interview that happened a couple weeks ago probably a couple months ago because of the SAG-AFTRA strike and they were working on this thing they probably can't stop the 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 deadline of, of, of an article coming out like this and hold it until a year from now so they come out with this article and it kind of goes into Aaron Taylor Johnson and and his life and what he's done in recent years and his franchise film roles and all this other stuff but to me the one thing that stuck out was talking a little bit about Craven the Hunter itself and the film that it's going to be and according to JC candor, it could take a little bit of a tragic note, and this is what she had to say about it talking to Esquire. Sony probably doesn't want me to lead with this, but the story is a tragedy. When the final credits roll on this film, if you've been paying attention, you won't have the feeling that this is all going to end great. This movie is set long before Craven and Spider-Man's first meet. It's an origin story about young Sergei's relationship with his gangster father, who is played by Russell Crowe, and that is what J.C. Canner had to say about the film, and to me, when I read that, it gets me a little intrigued about where this film is going to go, because it seems like this film is very much going to be an origin story about the creation of the Craven character, and how they do that, uh, we'll see, but... I really did like what I saw in the trailers. I do like the fact that it seems like this film is going to focus on Craven's relationship with his father, and the reason that I'm happy about that is because when you get Russell Crowe, you don't just want to use him in a minimal range, and when you get Russell Crowe, you want to utilize Russell Crowe, and seeing him in this trailer, he looks like he's really having a good time in this film. He is kind of chewing up the scenery and wherever he is in in the trailer, whatever scene he's in, and so I'm excited to see what he's going to do. He's got at the accent law. Down, and for me, when I hear what this film is going to be, it leads me to be interested in seeing can this be a success for the Spider-Man spin-off films? Because the only ones that have been successful are the Venom ones. Both Venom and Venom Two did very, very well at the box office, especially Venom Two in kind of the peak COVID era, especially in 2021 when it was still kind of a big thing in in October of 2021, and it did pretty well for itself, coming off of the big surprise hit of the first Venom film back in 2018 where that film made over $800 million at the box office. And it wasn't a film that people really enjoyed. It wasn't well received by critics, but still audiences really enjoyed it. And it made a boatload of money for the studio. And so Morbius has not done, did not do well for them, which came out last year. That was hit by a bunch of production issues, delays, all that kind of stuff. So for Craven, this is the one of the next big tests for it to see can a a popular Spider-Man villain stand on his own without Spider-Man in it. And Venom was able to do it. So we'll see if Kraven's going to be able to do it. Or is it just the fact that there's just something about Venom that people like to see? And they also like what Tom Hardy brings to the role. They like that iteration of the character. And it's just one of those things that's a fluke that's a big success. And that none of these other things like Kraven or Madam Web will do that good. Minus, of course, what they're doing with the Cross the Spider-Verse franchise. That aside, these live- action films, it's still very much up in the air for if these can actually be legitimate successes outside of what they've done with the Venom film so far. So we'll see where it all goes, but I really like the cast for this film, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Russell Crowe, Ariana DeBowse. The list goes on and on for this movie. Alexander the N- 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 uh, N- Salvi I think, is in this one as well. He was in Many Saints of Newark a couple years ago. He's a very good actor. And so I'm very curious to see how this film does and where it's able to go leading from here. It's now set to hit theaters on August 30th, 2024, and we'll see how it all comes together. And the final bit of movie news that I want to talk about on the podcast today is get into the big trending trailer that actually came out today, and it is for one of, if not the biggest award season play for Netflix this year. It is the next installment, the second installment in Bradley Cooper's directorial filmography coming off his hit directorial debut from A Star Is Born back in 2018, this time taking on the life of Leonard Bernstein in the film Maestro, which is co-written and directed by Bradley Cooper, and it stars both Cooper and Carey Mulligan playing his wife Felicia and and very much so this film is about the life of Leonard Bernstein, but it very much focuses on the relationship between he and his wife and the years that they kind of had together. And the trailer very much focuses on that. And it seems like, and what I really like about biopics nowadays is, unless it it can be a big hit like a Bohemian Rhapsody, general biopics don't really do that well. And the ones that I really like are ones that focus on a certain aspect Or point in a person's life and it seems like this one is very much focusing more so on the relationship between Bernstein and his wife than anything else and I really like that dynamic what I also really like about the trailer is the fact that it seems like it's going to be mixing in black and white with color and to me this is a complete 180 from what Bradley Cooper did with A Star Is Born he's really putting and trying to flex his artistic muscles with this film and do something completely different and I respect and really admire that for a director to really kind of say, you know what, I'm not pigeonholing myself to do a classic blockbuster kind of film in A Star Is Born. I really want to show up my creative, artistic ingenuities. And he's doing that, I think, with this movie. I'm really excited to see what he's able to do. I think he should have been nominated for a directing nom for *Stars* more, because I think he did a great job, and not just acting, but directing that movie. And it seems like he could potentially knock it out of the park once again with *Maestro*. I'm really excited to see this. It is hitting the Venice Film Festival first on September 2nd, which signals, of course, that Netflix is putting this out for an awards run. Bradley Cooper confirmed that he will not be in attendance for Venice due to the sag After strike continuing to go on. In the support of that, so he would not be available at least initially for the press tour of this film it is then going to hit limited theaters on november 22nd before hitting netflix during the holiday window of this year specifically on december 20th so again netflix is trying to take that Award season route played in theaters played on Netflix right around the time that Academy voters will probably be looking at this film and it's got everything that I think you would want for an Oscar kind of caliber film when we talk about doing check marks on a film there are just certain movies that check things off that Oscar voters and Oscar members will look at and this checks off all of them a prestigious or I think an up and coming prestigious director in Bradley Cooper 2 big time names in actors and both Bradley Cooper and Mulligan. It's got the cinematography, it's got the, I think, the story, the nature, everything that you would want in a, in a film like this. Going to a prestigious festival like Venice in its initial award season runs is going to be very interesting. And I'm very curious to see what the reactions for this film are. Are going to be. And I'm, I'm hoping that they're very good because I do see Bradley Cooper being one of the next, hopeful, great directors in the next five to 10 years that were just like, kind of not in the same vein as box office cowboy like Christopher Nolan, but at least for me. I'm hoping to see whenever Bradley Cooper is doing a movie in terms of direction, I'm really excited about. So, I'm hoping this film continues that moving forward and we get more of these films as well. So, we'll see how it all comes together, but I'm very excited. And this trailer was a really good, I think, beginning point of showcasing. What this film is going to be, how it is, what it's going to focus on, and it's not just saying, oh, this is the life of Leonard Bernstein, and then in the movie itself, it's kind of a psych, this is actually what it's about. I think it's smart that Netflix and the marketing team are coming out right away and saying, this is what we're focusing on, and we're going to go from there. So. I'm very excited about that, excited about the cast, the crew behind it, and really looking forward to Maestro when it hits in theaters on November 22nd and on Netflix December 20th. What did you guys think about the Maestro trailer? Let me know what you thought down below and leave your thoughts. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the Sam podcast today is to kind of do a little bit of a celebration to end the podcast today, and that is to throw a little bit of a celebration on the 15th anniversary of Tropic Thunder, which came out Around this time period, back in August of 2008, it was co written and directed by Ben Stiller, who, in today's day and age, right now, he is one of the best directors in the game, especially. In the world of TV, whether you look at something like *Escape of Denim*er to *Severance*, he is somebody that really does a great job. I think when it comes to direction, and this was one of the earlier forte's for Ben Stiller. Not really earlier, because he was—he's been—he was even directing stuff before *Tropic Thunder*. But when you look back on the directing resume of Ben Stiller, in terms of mainstream installments, this was one of the earliest ones that he did. And man, what a film he put out! This 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 has a cast upon a cast starring Ben Stiller himself, Jack Black, Robert Downey Jr., who earned a Best Supporting Actor nomination for his performance in this movie, Steve Coogan, Jay Baruchal, Danny McBride, Brendan T. Jackson, Bill Hader, Nick Nolte. Oh, and did I mention that there was a little but memorable performance from one small star whose name happens to be Tom Cruise. And so this was just an incredible list from beginning to end. And It was basically a satire take on Hollywood and that era of Hollywood, and it was truly an incredible, incredible comedy, and one that I don't think can be made today. I don't think you'd be able to get away with, even as somebody as respectable as Robert Downey Jr. nowadays, to turn him and make him and basically have him do blackface for this film. I don't know how that would really go in today's day and age. They were able to get away with it back then and got a freaking Oscar nomination for it. I don't know if you can do that in today's day. in age, but every everything else, I mean, he, even he was great in the film, regardless, he was awesome in the movie, Ben Stiller, Jack Black, it was it was just so much fun, and there's so many great quotable lines in the movie, it's just, it was one of those films that I, I never saw it in theaters, just because I was too young at the time, although I tried to convince my dad to take us and a bunch of my friends to go see the film, to no avail, but... It was something that I caught on a couple of years later, and it was just as funny as I hoped it would be. And yeah, it's just it's just one of those comedies that I don't feel like can be made, unfortunately, in today's day and age for a litany of reasons. And I think a big part of it would be, it, I don't think studios would have enough confidence in this film to to do well in theaters, just because comedies just don't do well in movies right now, just period. I mean, you look at what happened with No Hard Feelings and Joyride. I mean, No Hard Feelings had a big star in Jennifer Lawrence and that barely made enough money to, I think, break even if it even did. And Joyride, unfortunately, was a bomb at the box office and that was a film that I really enjoyed and pushed a lot of limits and was hilarious. And so, to me, it's just unfortunate that something I think like Tropic Thunder just wouldn't do well for a litany of reasons. And I just don't think the studio would have any, any, any confidence in the film to actually make profit. And this is a film that came out towards the end of it turned out to be one of the best summer seasons, I think, in the last 15 plus years or so when you look at a, a, a summer movie season that kind of started the trend in the era that we're in now with combo movies and some of these other films like Iron Man Incredible Hulk you also had films like The Dark Knight and Get Smart and uh, Hancock you had all these films come out and Tropic Thunder was something that came out late in the August window and did okay for itself honestly and it had a $92 million budget made $110 million domestically $85 million internationally for a worldwide total of 195 million dollars in the box office and I think for what it did that was that's a modest success for the film and I think this is a film that could do really that did really really well for itself and it it definitely is a film that has a lot of controversy and is one that I think again is in today's day and age when you put on the 2023 lenses one that you don't know if you make today's day and age or even if you can or not but overall I think this is a film that deserves its its roses for what it did 15 years ago and what is one of those kind of late summer films that are very memorable and the ones that you look for that are kind of diamonds in the rough to me this is definitely one of those films that are kind of diamonds in the rough that you you don't think anything of and just blows your mind and just makes you have a really good time and i think was a great satire of hollywood and especially in that time period back in 2008 and the people who wrote it ben stiller justin thoreau who of you know from like the leftovers he wrote it along with ethan cohen so it had it just had a great cast and crew involved with this film, and if you're definitely looking for a film to check out, I highly recommend checking out *Tropic Thunder*. It's definitely a really great comedy to be it, check out and enjoy yourself with whenever you have the chance. But what do you guys what do you guys think of *Tropic Thunder*? Have you ever seen it? Are you even interested in checking it out? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. And with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in on to the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on here, such as You Mad Bro?, the number one source, see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, make sure to check out Goal Driven Professionals, geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, make sure to check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast, solutions such as Wrestle Attic Radio, Fretzel Mania podcast and midnight showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and X at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code Ambiguous. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on X at Basel Samuel, that's B U S E L L S A M E V L, and also on Facebook at Sam L. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, keep on Screening.